You are listening to The Conversation on HPR. I'm Catherine Cruz. Tomorrow marks two years since the World Health Organization declared a pandemic due to the spread of the COVID-19 virus. And this week, Governor David Ige announced he will end the mandatory indoor masking requirement in two weeks, with the exception of places like prisons, public schools, and group living facilities. We talked to him this morning about his administration's uh, emergency response and what the next administration needs to do as we prepare for the next pandemic. Catherine, I think the biggest challenge is the uncertainty. And if you think back about when we first issued the emergency order, we didn't really have any idea about how long the pandemic would last. But I think generally people thought a couple weeks, maybe a couple months. Clearly, I think no one ever predicted back then that two years later we would still be in a pandemic and having to deal with uh, COVID cases and, you know, people getting very ill and and some of them actually dying. So I think that that's been the biggest challenge, you know, and even for the community, right, having to be concerned about an infectious disease that spread through the air and face-to-face contact, which is what we do in Hawaii, right, and having to adapt and change to how we live our life has been really, really difficult. What do you think maybe was the most difficult decision you had to make over these last two years? I think the most difficult, Catherine, was really the decision to impose the mandatory quarantine on all incoming travelers. Virtually every state ordered a quarantine, but nobody did anything about it. And I truly felt that I would not be ordering a quarantine if we weren't committed to enforcing it and making it meaningful. And so I knew that travel would be shut down to virtually nothing. I knew that it would be difficult to enforce quarantine, but but we had to do everything we could to make certain that people wouldn't be traveling to the islands and just think that it's just like any place else. You know, Las Vegas had a quarantine and, you know, nobody paid any attention. It didn't make any difference. We wanted to make certain that everyone who traveled to Hawaii understood that a quarantine is a quarantine and they would have to isolate. That definitely was the hardest decision. And then, you know, um, maintaining that throughout the entire pandemic has been a challenge. And your administration has been criticized for not doing enough on the contact tracing, on testing in general. Uh, How do you respond to that going forward as you prepare for the next pandemic? Certainly, we are trying to build the infrastructure uh, knowing that there will be another pandemic. And I just wanted to, to note that I think that Hawaii was better prepared than most states because of, you know, SARS and some of the other infectious diseases that we had to deal with. I know that we were criticized for not having sufficient capacity, but we're the only state that continued to do contact tracing throughout the entire pandemic. And we're still doing it today on a a very different basis. I knew that we needed the ability to test to identify those who were infected with the virus. And our state laboratory was one of the very first in the country to be certified to test and identify COVID-19. And we continue to have a very robust surveillance system that allows us to track the variants. And we've been one of the most comprehensive in testing for variants and being aware of the mutations that occurred within the virus. So I don't think anyone truly had predicted the full scope of the pandemic about how transmissible the virus would be and how many in our community would become infected. And I think that that was the challenge. Without federal funding and federal support, we would not have been able to to carry this burden by ourselves. Testing and vaccinations has literally cost us hundreds of millions of dollars. And I don't believe that the state can set up a system that we can sustain that would be capable of avoiding the next infectious disease. 
But I do believe that we're in a much better uh, situation uh, moving forward. Catherine, mm-hmm. one of the things that we did focus on early on in the pandemic was uh, to expand testing capacity. I know that, yes, we were criticized for not testing all of those traveling or not doing more extensive tests. But if you recall, we started at the very beginning of the pandemic being able to maybe do 200 tests a day. We helped to certify the private labs in being able to do the tests, and we got to 3,000 tests per day, and maybe we could surge to do 5,000 tests the day. You know, today, Catherine, we do have the capacity to do 30,000 tests a day, which is a tremendous difference. And just uh, as a point of scale, prior to the pandemic, we were receiving 25,000 to 35,000 visitors each and every day. So certainly some kind of testing program that would require post-arrival testing would have consumed all of the testing capacity that we have in the state. Well, we do have to address the technology aspect of this because we saw what happened when our systems were overloaded at the Labor Department with the unemployment claims and then with the software issue at the Department of Health when our Omicron numbers just couldn't handle and then we couldn't input the negative cases and then we couldn't do the averages. So I don't know what more can be done in the time that you've got left in office But what are your thoughts on that, and what should the next governor do? Clearly, we are taking action to fix those solutions. Definitely, we're expanding connections of all of the labs uh, that are doing testing. You know, federal government did provide us funds because they realized how important getting access to data would be. So we are looking at the work that's necessary to fix the network of our labs to be able to handle more data uh, for the next infectious disease or pandemic that um, comes our way. And we are uh, implementing an upgrade to our uh, UI system. And uh, we are on track to be able to finish uh, that project, hopefully by the end of the year. We understood that system was very antiquated. You know, it's one of those things, Catherine, because the system was so antiquated, we uh, were able to catch a lot of the fraud that occurred. You know, there are many bad actors that tried to take advantage of the situation that the pandemic caused, and there were lots of attempts to to take uh, government money inappropriately. And because our system was so old, the system prevented some of the fraud from occurring. And clearly, with the upgrade in the new system, hopefully, we'll be able to protect against that as well. And is there anything you would like to say just about the people who, who we lost to COVID, you know, and not necessary COVID cases? I mean, you know, in your case, you lost your mom. And I know it was very difficult for many of us who had loved ones in care homes and long-term care facilities who we just couldn't see for for a while. And, and, and that was very distressing to many families. Yeah, I mean, I think that that, you know, was one of the hardest parts of this pandemic, right, Catherine? I mean, we're a very social community and potlucks and holiday gatherings are just such a vibrant part of what makes Hawaii special. And we had to forego a lot of that. I was asked a question by one of the national media about why Hawaii is the last state in the country to end the mask mandate indoors. And I said, you know, one of the reasons is because we all understand that we're part of a community and what we do affects our friends and neighbors. And I think most importantly, you know, we are willing to sacrifice for the community, you know, personal preferences or conveniences because we really do understand how it's important to keep our community uh, healthy and safe. And giving up those life milestones, I think, was the hardest part for all of us in the community. I personally had relatives pass away and we were not able to have the celebrations of life 
the funeral services that we normally would have. Uh, you know, graduations and first birthdays, and you know how it is here in the islands, were all things that we all had to give up uh, during this pandemic, and we won't ever get those back. Well, you talked about the mass mandates. Someone said, gosh, we should just drop it now. What? Let's not wait two weeks. And yet somebody, you know, yesterday said we're dropping it too soon because of what's happening in Asia. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that's been the challenge uh, during this pandemic, Catherine. There always is two sides to every decision that we made. You know, we were very focused from the beginning that we would look at the science and look at the data. For me personally, I was willing to to make the tough decisions to keep our community healthy and safe. And knowing that regardless of what decision I made, someone would be upset with it and someone would criticize me about it and people would be vocal about it. That's just the nature of, you know, having to be governor and having to make some of these decisions. Is there anything you want to say as the as the order then uh, uh, expires, just about getting everybody back to work, you know, provide government services? I'm really proud of the public servants, Catherine. I, I think they've had to change everything they did in order to be healthy and safe in their job. And I think most importantly, they've had to change uh, everything that they do to continue to offer uh, services to our community. And, you, you know, they, the services the state provides are under high demand during this pandemic. You know, requests for MedQuest, Medicaid, health insurance increased by 25 to 30%. There's significant increase in requests for uh, food stamps. You know, all of the social safety net services were off the chart in terms of demand. And our public servant really rose to the occasion, found innovative ways. They had to work around ancient software that should have been put out of service decades ago uh, and found a way to continue to to, uh, support the community. And, you know, so I'm really proud for the public servants. Uh, And I'm really proud of the community. You know, Hawaii has had the lowest per capita number of cases in the country and amongst the lowest per capita deaths in the country. Uh, And it is because our community was willing to do what was necessary to sacrifice uh, personal conveniences in order to protect the health and well-being of our community. And we all share in the notion that we have saved thousands of lives by doing what's best for our community. That was Governor David Ige, who we talked to this morning on the eve of the two-year anniversary of the declaration of the COVID pandemic by the World Health Organization. All this morning, volunteers have been out canvassing Oahu for the annual point-in-time count of our homeless community. The neighbor islands completed theirs in January, but Oahu put off its count until today. We talked to Laura Thielen with Partners in Care about the renewed effort. So usually we do a point-in-time count every single year here on Oahu. Uh, But, of course, with COVID, we took last year off um, due to the high numbers of of COVID patients, and we wanted to make sure that we weren't uh, adding to that crisis. So last year we were given a waiver by HUD, the uh, Department of Housing and Urban Development, to not do the count. Uh, And so it was supposed to be done uh, the last week of January this year, 2020. But as most people remember, January was a very hard month for us in regards to the numbers of COVID. So we actually requested a postponement. So Oahu is the only island that asked for a postponement, and that was due to our numbers and our hospitalizations of COVID patients. And so our count uh, then got rescheduled to March uh, 10th. 
and where people were sleeping on the night of March 9th. We've got over 300 volunteers that are working with us this year to get the most accurate numbers that we absolutely can. But along with numbers, we're also surveying the majority of the people that we encounter so that we can get some really great data to help us figure out how many folks have been affected by COVID, how many people have just arrived here, uh, how many people have uh, different problems that uh, prevent them from getting into housing. So this is not only a count, but an actual, uh, it's the ability for us to really talk to individuals and see where we're at. But it's also very important to recognize that this is a snapshot in time. Uh, over the course of a year, we probably have closer to 10,000 people that at some point have touched the homeless service system. Uh, but we are hoping that we're either at or below the number of folks that we counted in 2020, which was just over 4,400. And anything else that's different this year that you're trying? You know, COVID did mess up a lot of things throughout our entire community and our entire nation and the world in general. But one of the things that we really need to look at is what were the opportunities that were also brought to us? And uh, for us with the homeless service system, we actually got quite a bit of funding through COVID relief funds. And so we're really interested to see, did that help prevent our numbers from going up? Did it actually help in, in pushing numbers down? Uh, one of the programs that our, our agency was able to uh, create through COVID funds housed over 300 households in the last nine months. That's more than we usually house during non-COVID times. So we're hoping that with those extra almost 800 people off of the streets, uh, is that going to help us in the future? This was our opportunity with all this funding coming in to really dig deep and make sure that we were providing housing, housing even during a pandemic. So there's really no excuse for us to be able to do that outside of a pandemic. And, you know, just driving around, I have noticed more people with animals. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. And animals are such a comfort. And uh, we see even amongst our community during COVID times when people were working from home, they were getting more pets and, you know, they're, they're an emotional support. And uh, this was a very lonely time for a lot of people uh, during COVID in, in just the regular community. And that's how a lot of our folks feel out on the streets. It's not only a protection, but it's also a comfort, an emotional comfort to have pets. And so we need to recognize that. And we've got some great volunteer uh, veterinarians. And one of the big items that we're uh, giving out this year, like we do every year, um, is uh, dog food and cat food from the Humane Society. We've got thousands and thousands of pounds of animal food so that folks will feel comfortable talking to us. And they're getting something in return um, to hopefully share some information and share their story with us. There are very few shelters that accept animals, so it's also very hard for people people who do have pets um, to be able to get into shelter. So for a lot of those folks, we need to find those landlords that are accepting of pets so that we can move them directly into independent housing. And do you know just how successful our outreach was just during the pandemic for getting people who are homeless, you know, getting them vaccinated? Or tested. Oh, we have got some of the most amazing providers out there. When I look out and we started the discussions about COVID back in March of 2020, uh, you know, I was really nervous about how many providers would step back and say, you know, it's it's too dangerous. Uh, the health of my of of myself and my family is is so important. And while that was of the utmost importance, not a single outreach provider stopped providing services, and that. To me, those are the heroes of, of our homeless community, uh, you know, the, the shelters that never close their doors. Uh, no programs shut down because of COVID unless they had an outbreak. And those were very few and far between. And it's because of the vaccinations and the testing that was done 
one of our biggest providers uh, for vaccinations and uh, testing was Project Vision. And they were they are out on the streets every single day. Um, they're out on the beaches. I, I would help them put together clinics out on the beaches and in the parks. And we'd go out uh, at 10 o'clock at night um, downtown and offer COVID testing to people. They did thousands and thousands of tests and vaccinations. And so because of that, there was not the huge surge in COVID cases amongst those who are experiencing homelessness in our community. Wow, that's amazing, yeah. So kudos to all the effort yes. um, that's been put into that uh, to help this population. You know, I was driving around the Sand Island uh, mm-hmm. area recently and, you know, couldn't help and wonder as I drove past the viaduct, you know, what happened to the homeless population there? Because I used to go down there frequently to do stories mm-hmm. and, you know, I knew them. You know, you get to know yeah. the folks you know, in that area. And I just thought, gosh, I wonder where they went because now it's been used as kind of a, a staging area and a yard for uh, for the state highways and all of that. But, yeah, yeah I, you just can't help but wonder where do they all go yes and and that's even a question that we have to figure out because you know we lose contact with folks and you know if we were close to getting them into housing or getting their documents it um, can possibly really mess those um, pathways up for them but uh, especially in Sand Island we've got great partnerships with DLNR uh, and Pua and her crew and uh, Scott Morishige's office at the governor's office you know they really work hand in hand with us to make sure that when there are things that are being done in those areas that we're at least alerted and hopefully engaged with folks so that we can figure out where they are going. Uh, it's the same thing happened with the uh, implementation of weed and seed in the Chinatown area. From one day to the next almost, it was a, a huge decrease in the number of people that were in that area, which is wonderful for the Chinatown area, but at the same time for, for the providers, we really Uh, had to work hard to figure out where those people went to and um, be able to connect with them again wherever they are. You know, and I was looking at the breakdown on your website Mm -hmm. and the Native Hawaiians are still quite a large number. Yes, it is quite a large number. uh, And what we're also seeing is that the programs that have been created recently also reflect that the, those in those higher need areas, such as Native Hawaiian and uh, other Pacific Islanders, are actually receiving um, uh resources, um, not as much as they need. Uh, we're also very supportive of, of you know, Department of uh, Hawaiian Homelands and making sure that people who are, are beneficiaries get that information. And in our last count, our last point in time count in 2020, we actually worked in conjunction with DHHL to sh- see who is on our point in time count roles who also are beneficiaries and if they've been connected with DHHL and if not, make those connections so that they can move away from the homeless system and move into the right system that that gives them the benefits that they have a right to. All right. So then we'll just have to see what the result is. Yes. And look for the report out in April. Yeah, we're uh, we'll be reporting to HUD at the end of April and we'll hopefully have uh, a more uh, community oriented report available in mid-May. And that was Laura Thielen of Partners in Care talking about the point in time count of the unsheltered that took place today between 6 and 11 a.m. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, presenting a site-specific installation by social practice artist Theaster Gates as part of Hawaii Triennial 2022. Admission tickets at honolulumuseum.org. Do you find HPR's on-air campaigns exciting? Would you excel at organizing events to engage our community? Are you someone with excellent interpersonal communication skills and a public radio nerd? HPR has position openings for on-air campaign and event producer and membership coordinator. Details on the Employment Opportunities page at hawaiipublicradio.org.
What's in a Name? Our reality check with Honolulu Civil Beat today features reporter Brittany Light's story about Kauai's Russian fort and the recent indictment of a woman accused of being a secret agent for that country. Brittany's on the line today. Good morning, Brittany. Good morning, Catherine. Yeah, so I'm sure there's lots of buzz there on Kauai about the, the recent indictments. There is. You know, this is a a bizarre story that just keeps getting more bizarre. And this most recent news about, you know, the um, woman who's working as a secret agent for Russia, you know, on U.S. soil and her attempts to sway public opinion uh, about the so-called Russian fort on Kauai, it's just adding to the intrigue and to, you know, adding another layer of of um, you know strangeness to this story that goes back to the early 1800s. Now, the uh, uh, there there is a movement to change the name, right? The whole idea was to uh, rename the site to represent the Hawaii heritage of that area. Exactly. So, a really watered down version of of a really complicated, long history is that. This fort was built in the early 1800s by Hawaiians. It was occupied by Hawaiian royalty for more than 40 years. And Russians never garrisoned the fort. They didn't build it. And technically it was a Bavarian doctor working for a fur trading company that was partially controlled by the Russian government who gave the fort its most Russian contributions which are its name and its Italian-style design. Okay. So you can see that there's truly little direct Russian connection, although for many, many years this site has been known as, you know, a Russian fort. So it's, it's kind of a twisted story, but uh, somehow, what, this gal, Elena Branson, tried to uh, make sure that the name didn't get changed? Yes. So in recent years, there's been a grassroots effort to change the name to reflect its, you know, special place in Hawaiian history and to sort of help correct some of the false narrative that's, you know, made its way through history about what that site really was. Uh, And so there was, you know, this woman, Elena Branson, and she was trying to sway public opinion. She actually organized in 2017 a a big bicentennial celebration at the fort. There were government officials who flew in from Moscow to attend. So that's, you know, a very very unlikely scenario, right? Um, The state of this fort right now is really just a pile of rubble. So there was all of this kind of money and uh, political connections being thrown at this site. And I think some people were just sort of taken aback by why why is all, there all this interest in this site? Uh, and so now we see that this woman was really kind of acting uh, as an agent of the Russian government to try to make sure that the name isn't changed. It's fascinating. It sounds like a plot for a movie. <laughs> it does. It really does. And so for the folks who know the history about that fort, uh, they just must be so bemused about the turn of events. I think so. And, you know, when I've talked with folks about this over the years, there seems to be two camps. There are some people who, you know, these, you know, this woman and and other folks from Russia have really, you know, been present during a lot of these policymaking meetings. And so, you know, they've gotten to know these Russian folks and, and they've in some cases grown to like them. And they, some folks will say, well, let's just compromise and let's just call it you know, the Russian for Paula Ula, which is the Hawaiian name. So you have some folks who are trying to kind of, you know, take some of the controversy out of this. And then you have other people who are saying, no, this, this is a this is a Hawaiian place. We want to change the name. So it's a it's a Hawaii state park. So it will be up to the state to make the final decision about whether it will be renamed or not. Okay, so we'll wait to see what that uh, decision is and when the signs pop up and and what they f- uh, finally get agreement on. Uh, but yeah, interesting history, but thanks so much, Brittany. You're welcome. We have been talking with uh, Brittany Light for today's Reality Check to read the full story on this fascinating uh, story of visitcivilbeat.org.
For the first time in 14 years, Catholic schools in Hawaii are seeing a jump in enrollment. Across the country, it's the first significant rise in 50 years. Llewellyn Young is superintendent of Hawaii's Catholic schools. He tells us that it mirrors a trend across the nation. In recent years, we've seen a slew of small Catholic schools close uh, because of dwindling enrollment. I think in the long run, and what we're looking at today, that had to happen only because it put the seriousness of the pandemic at the forefront. And what we truly wanted to see our Catholic schools do was thrive and not just survive. So that was the message that we sent out. You need to show us how you're going to thrive. And this was early, just just as the pandemic started. We told all the Catholic schools, show us how you're going to thrive. Don't just show us how you're going to survive. Because if you if you're just going to do that, then you just you might as well consider closing. And that was a very serious, a serious mandate. And uh, and all of our schools took it very seriously. And sure enough, two schools after they did all their numbers, after they looked at all their scenarios, and they did all the preparation that they possibly could they decided that they were not going to be able to uh, thrive, and they closed. And those two were St. John the Baptist and Our Lady of Perpetual Help, and we were very sad to see them go. But uh, the writing was on the wall, and they knew what they had to do. And then the year later, we saw St. Anne's close, and that was, uh, I think, a surprise to a lot of people because they had been around for so long. But uh, but they did the numbers as well, and they came up with the same, the same thing. They were not going to be able to thrive. And, uh, and that was very important. Our schools today are all showing us now that they are able to thrive. And they've shown it not just through the enrollment numbers, but through the amazing things that, that they're doing all across the state. So how much uh, uh, did we increase this year? That's amazing. I mean, we increased a net of 288 students. But I need to explain that because in actuality, for the elementary schools alone, they increased 322 students across all elementary Catholic schools across the state. The preschools increased about 115. So together, those two, we increased 437 students between the preschool and the elementary school. The high schools, they struggled, and that's understandable because they have a higher, uh, they have a higher tuition. Uh, their students can go to distance learning a lot easier than the younger grades could. So, you know, parents were making that distinction, and we know with the high tuition, they had to make some tough choices. And unfortunately, we lost some some high school students. So we went down. Other than St. Louis, St. Louis saw an increase, but all the rest of the high schools went down about 149 students. So we netted 288 students this year, which is about 4.5%, which is phenomenal. I mean, we've never seen that kind of an increase, but it is also consistent with the national trend. So, so Hawaii is right in line with the national trend, and, uh, and we were so happy to, to see this. And it made sense for, for what our schools were able to do. And talk about uh, what you're seeing on the neighbor islands. The neighbor islands are going through the same kind of dynamics. I mean, they, you know, it's very interesting because the pandemic has so many facets. It has so many tentacles. And when we look at it, you know, our county governments were involved and the the schools had to adjust to the county as well as the state, as well as the national. And on top of all of that, they still had to uh, they had to uh, embrace all of our Catholic values and faith, uh, faith values, principles and and morals. They had to instill all of this and they had to have They had to have this ready to go at the very beginning in August of 2020. And all of our neighbor island schools, you know, they met the challenge. I mean, we have one school out there. Unfortunately, they've gone through several leadership changes over the last year and a half since the pandemic, and they've struggled. But enrollment wise, they're still they're they're still above water. I mean, they're still they're still very healthy. But however, with the leadership changes, they've gotten into some financial issues. They have a new pastor who's who's really passionate about Catholic education. So there's a light at the end of the tunnel. They just have to make it pass. And this this school, unfortunately, is uh, is on Kauai. Their their community is is really rallying behind them. I'm talking about St. Catherine School. Uh, they have every chance and every potential to be as as vibrant as you know the best of our schools. And their qual- the quality of education at St. Catharines has not changed. It is still excellent. It's still wonderful. And the community there is amazing. They're all rallying around the school. I expect that that school will come out with flying colors at the end of the school year. So, um, you know, every school has its own little circumstances. Other neighbor island schools on the same island, St. Teresa's in Kekaha, is doing phenomenal. They had a significant increase. They have wait lists in several of their classes. It's hard to get into St. Teresa's right now, and that's a good thing. Uh, they've done amazing things, and, and they are certainly thriving. 
And we see the same thing happening over on Maui with Sacred Hearts. Uh, St. Anthony's has a new administrator and a new pastor, but they are also doing uh, fairly well. And then, of course, out in, uh, on the Big Island, St. Joseph's in Hilo, they're doing financially very well, and, uh, and they have a lot of support from their alumni and from their community. Uh, excellent programs. I mean, they're just on fire, and I'm only hoping the best for all of them. Well, in St. Joseph's, they get to boast that one of their students was a Nobel winner in chemistry, Jennifer Dowda. That's right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, That's right. we have several distinguished alumni coming from, uh, from that school and from others. So, yes. Well, full disclosure and true confessions, uh, I'm a product of uh, the Catholic schools. And, uh, you know, w- w- what is it that, that uh, you can share with uh, our listeners about the value of a Catholic school education? It's so hard to package sometimes. I, I just I want to tell people out there that Catholic schools are so much more than people think. Uh, you know, there's there's a stereotype about Catholic schools, you know, anchoring into too much tradition or whatever the case might be. But Catholic schools, part of their DNA is innovation. And it's innovation around not just learning, but around the five facets of the whole child. You know, so the Catholic schools look at the whole child, the whole being. They address the academic, they address the spiritual, uh, the social, the emotional, and the physical elements. You know, all of those things come together in a Catholic school. And that's something you can't get anywhere else. Uh, and so, so that's part of it. But what does that mean in the end? I mean, what does that truly do? Well, we can talk about character development, we can talk about, and all of this happens, character development, instilling a fine morals, values, and principles in students, letting them know, giving them that competitive edge outside, but how does that truly manifest? And the only way that that can manifest is through stories, the stories of our alumni, the stories of families, the stories like yourself, you know, if, if you have a story about the Catholic school, about what's going on, what happened in your life, and I have my own story, of course, but I've heard so many wonderful stories out there that capture what Catholic school did to, to, to develop the whole child for that particular person. When they went out in the world that they were able to navigate because they had the critical thinking skills, but they had a strong moral compass. They knew what was right and they knew what was wrong. They went out into the world and they navigated this because they, we were giving them the tools and the resources and, and the knowledge necessary to navigate some very difficult decisions, especially when those tough moral dilemmas come across, you at least had some background to be able to make decisions and know that you were standing on the right foot. So those are the kinds of things that I think that Catholic schools do for people. That's why it's so important that I think, you know, everybody should get a Catholic education, but it is certainly out there um, and ready for anyone who wants a good, round focus on the whole child. And, uh, And that's that's what Catholic schools are about. You know, there are uh, many families, I think, that uh, might have left uh, public schools because of the pandemic and, you know, because everything was virtual and they wanted something more for their child uh, because they probably saw their learning backsliding. You know, the uh, learning loss is something that, you know, uh, the public school system in particular, and God bless them, I mean, my heart goes out to all of them for what they've had to deal with, but, you know, just the sheer numbers, it, it's a very different situation. But, uh, you know, learning loss is evident, and we've seen some of those children transfer into our schools this year, and there is, we have documented data that shows significant learning loss for a lot of those children that are coming in. So we've had to increase our spectrum for differentiation, which means that, you know, now we're going to hand, we're going to really try to coax them in and get them caught up to speed. And so we've had to do this. But for our kids who have been with us from the very beginning through the pandemic, we got our, our test scores back recently on our Terra Nova. We scored 10 percentage points higher than the national average on wow. all subject areas, which was phenomenal, which shows that we did not have the same level of learning loss that was experienced elsewhere. So that's another plus for our schools. You know, we were able to stick with it and, and keep students up to par in their, in their learning objectives for each, little, each grade level. It's really important for us. Obviously, tuition is a, a, a big factor in families' decisions, you know, uh, because some families cannot afford, you know, some of the high price of a, a private school tuition. That's very true. I mean, in comparison to our, our other private school uh, uh, colleagues out there, we tend to be uh, a lot less, but we provide as much, if not more, quality in our, in our education, depending on who you're talking about, of course. But uh, it's very true, you know. And if you're worried about it or if you're just curious about it, 
go and see one of our Catholic schools. You know, we're across, we have 27 schools across the island chain. Go and talk to, to the Catholic schools. They're open to, to, to explaining to you exactly how you can send your child to school. There is a sacrifice involved, but it's a sacrifice that's worth it. If you ask any of our families out there, was it worth it for you to send your child to Catholic school, um, knowing what you know now and, and, and having your child go through all of this? And I will, I will tell you that the majority, the grand majority of parents out there and grandparents or whoever's paying for their Catholic school education will tell you, yes, it was so worth it because we've seen the change in our child. I keep hearing that. We've seen the change in our child. We've seen how this, the child grew up, how, how the child matured, how they developed, how all of a sudden it was a, a, a totally different person and it was a, a better person. It, you know, they helped them to develop their potential, their character. And, uh, and that's very important as well. So visit a Catholic school. See what they have to offer. See how they can help you. There's financial aid available in main, most of our campuses. So, um, so please, you know, if, if you think that a Catholic school can help you right now, go and visit a Catholic school and discover what other people are discovering, that we are so much more than what people think. That was Wellen Young, superintendent of Catholic schools in Hawaii, talking to us about the enrollment job for the first time in 14 years here in the islands. And here in Hawaii, St. Louis and Marinol lead the pack in high school and elementary school enrollment, respectively. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Symphony Orchestra, performing music of Mahler, Grenfell, Brahms, and featuring cellist Sterling Elliott performing the Hungarian Rhapsody by Popper, March 19th and 20th at Hawaii Theater, myhso.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Matthew Fox, author of Confessions, The Making of a Post-Denominational Priest. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about bringing spirituality alive in culture and religion. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. When we send our children off to school, we usually do with the expectation that they'll be safe and eat a good lunch. But parents and students at Kamehameha Schools Ke'au on Hawaii Island have sounded the alarm over some of the meals served over there. Photos of raw chicken and undercooked eggs and meatloaf have been circulating on social media in recent weeks. One parent who asked that we withhold her name spoke with the conversations, Russell Subiono, about the situation. Can you describe to us what your, what your daughter is seeing at school in the lunchroom? So from the beginning of the year, the quality of their lunches was pretty gnarly. Undercooked food, the portions were just horrible. Barely, you know, sometimes she would send me pictures and it was just, it literally looked like just even something I would not eat. No fresh vegetables or fruit and just, just really bad. And then we got notification that towards the end of last year before Christmas that the school was going to get into a new contract with a new cafeteria program, I guess, and that they were going to have better, fresher meals. So all year long, my daughter was like, Mom, I'm so hungry. I, I can't. The lunches are disgusting. And I'm not one to, you know, grumble about food. We weren't raised right. that way. Right. I used to tell her, eh, suck it up. You know, you're getting this. This is what you're being served. You be thankful. You suck it up until she started sending me pictures of her food. Then I was like, oh, don't eat that. <laughs> don't eat that. So then when we got news that they were going to be changing companies, I told her, hey, it's going to get better. You guys are going to have fresh food and it's going to be like home cooked meals. It's kind of how they told us. So January came and the lunches became even worse. And so I know I, you know, some of those pictures that I've seen floating around on Instagram, raw, like red bloody chicken, raw meat, just really nasty. So myself, as well as along with multiple other parents, had sent our concerns to the school that, hey, this is unacceptable. Our, our kids really shouldn't have to be eating this. And if this is their only options in school, you know, this needs to change. And yeah. my kid also said that, oh, we, I said, well, what do you do when you sit down to your plate and you see that? She goes, I, I tell them. And I guess they had like some kind of portal, something that they had to log in to submit their complaints or concerns. Mm -hmm. 
And a couple other kids that I talked to said that they're like, Auntie, we've done that. Like, we've complained. We've, we've told them. We've showed them. And nothing has changed. So I'm hoping that I know I've seen on Instagram and social media that a lot of pictures were circulating and more people are aware of it. And I'm hoping that this great school who's great and everything else can fix the poor lunches for their kids. Like, it's just really unacceptable. Not just flavor-wise, but health-wise. I mean, serving them raw chicken, that's not okay. The pictures that you that you sent, uh, I saw some pictures of, of severely undercooked chicken. Looked like some meatloaf mm-hmm. that was rare in the middle. And uh, uh, like yeah. a picture of, it looks like mashed potatoes that looked like really runny or, or um, just didn't really I think look. that was eggs. Oh, I it was think eggs. that was breakfast. Oh, okay. I think it was okay. eggs. And those yeah. those pictures that you sent me, are are those pictures from your student or are they from some other students that had also taken pictures? The the hamburger, the meatloaf one, that was my daughter's picture. That was like that was the last straw. That was last week, I think. And she sent me that. I'm like, that's it. I I can't I can't yeah. do this anymore. So I called the school. And then she had sent me the the picture of the chicken was one of her friend's pictures. And there was um one of the kids had started an Instagram page and my daughter had sent her pictures to that. I think they since shut down that page but I reached out I don't know who it was I reached out and I said oh you know thank you for starting this page to help start the conversation but make sure you're emailing the principal as well yeah and whoever it was responded and says yeah we've you know we I could tell it was a student by the way they responded they're like you know we were told to submit through the portal and this and that but nothing changes and you know, no matter how much we say, like, it's been almost the end of the school year already and nothing has changed, even though they've changed companies. What does the lunchroom process look like? Is it, we also went to public school and, yeah. you know, we've both gone through the lunchrooms there. Is the setup at Kamehameha schools kind of the same? You kind of go through the line and, and you kind of pick up your, your tray and and uh, and then go to a place to sit, to eat? Is that is it a similar setup in their lunchroom? I think, I don't know, I think it used to be. I don't know because okay. of COVID if they pre-do everything and oh, close okay. it all up and yeah. then send it. You know, like yeah. if before going to the cafeteria, like you walk through with your tray, right? And they yeah. put everything on your plate. Right. I don't think it's done that way. I think it's all put into your plate. Your plate is closed and then it's given to you. Okay, okay. Yeah, okay. yeah. And so from what I've heard, some of the students have complained. I know in your social media posts, you put out a an email to notify, I believe, Kumulehua about the situation. Have, mm-hmm. ha, have the parents or has your daughter heard any feedback from any of the complaints or any of the emails sent out? Yeah. So after I sent the email to Kumulehua, he did email me back and he just said that he was going to be emailing the campus leads for food service and that they would respond accordingly. And he asked me for some of the pictures that my daughter had. So I sent that. And then the other day, I'm trying to look in my email right now. They did send out kind of a blanket email. It wasn't like a personalized email. Oh, here. So they sent out an email that says addressing the issue of undercooked meals. Okay. But, and, yeah. And, and but ultimately. My, you know, my daughter, my daughter had hamburger with paper still stuck into it, her yeah, french fries with hair, just like, just unsanitary. Like, ooh. And, and uh, it's kind of, when it says fresh or emphasis on fresh, like nothing on their plate ever look fresh and nutritious. And, and ultimately, what do, what do parents want? Parents want fresh food, balanced nutrition, and just something healthy for their kids to eat, right? Right, yeah, fresh food, something healthy. I mean, nobody's going to eat. I mean, appearance does play a big part. Now, if it was just the taste and our kids are being picky because of the taste, that's different. Like, hey, you need to eat what's there. But when it comes to the point of their food just is, I mean, their hamburgers look, I don't, somebody, one of the kids didn't even call it a hamburger. They called it it a barnacle burger because it looked like it had crazy nasty barnacles on it. And it did, in the picture it did, you know. I mean, they just need to be more careful about what they're putting on the plate. And if this is a company, an on, a, a comp- it's not a brand new company, they should know how to serve mass meals. Yeah. Still healthy, you know? 
it's it's not okay. Like I wonder, like, this is where I would think even the Department of Health would have to step in and say, whoa, what are you guys feeding these kids? Doesn't even pass temperature check. That was HPR's uh, Russell Subiano talking to a parent of a Kamehameha Schools Kiao student about claims of undercooked food served in the lunchroom. In the email that the school sent to parents at the time, the school said in part, we are aware of concerns over food quality over the past couple of weeks. And while change does take time, there are concerns that need immediate uh, rectification. We are aware of the photos being posted on social media and this issue was addressed directly with management yesterday. Mass meal preparation is complex, uh, especially with individually plated meals, particularly when the emphasis is on fresh ingredients versus processed foods. There are additional accountability measures being put into place for checking food preparation, as well as additional training for those who have specific kuleana to ensure proper food quality. Uh, Kamehameha Schools declined further comment on this. The Department of uh, Health says if parents are concerned about food safety at their school, they should contact the district health office on their island. Uh, We were told that this was not done in this case. Uh, The DOH says it gets hundreds of complaints about food sanitation every year. It said uh, complaints about undercooked food in schools is rare, uh, but it plans to follow up. that winds it up for us today. Up tomorrow, more on the call for water conservation. Drier than normal conditions are a major concern in islands across the state. Call our talkback line with feedback, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And you can connect with Facebook, too. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.